0: Today's scripture is Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 26 through 38. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves." and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. This is the word of the Lord, please be seated.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Hope you're all doing well today. Uh, my name is Keith. I'm a pastoral resident here at Redemption Church, Tucson. Uh, for all of those who are new or visiting here, uh, I want to say, again, just welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, and many of you, I don't I don't recognize your faces because maybe you've just started coming back in person. And so uh, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Please come up and say hi Um If we haven't met in person, uh, I'd be happy to to meet you and get to know you. Uh, The best way, some of you have asked over the last few weeks like how to get connected into the life of the church and I know that's a question that's come up for some people as they're trying to figure out life that's normal again. Um, The best way that you could do that, especially if you're looking to get in an RC and you don't know what uh, redemption community you're in right now, is to fill out that Connect card. Whether you filled it out before or not, if you've been here forever or not, if you're brand new or not, fill out that Connect card that we put up before, uh, and then you'll get in the system so that we know that we can plug you into a a community group. Um, When I was in college, my freshman year of college, I was commuting from my house uh, my parents' house, and it was about a forty minute drive to my school. I went to a school called u c Davis in Northern California go aggies. um yeah, go aggies um, and I had the i don't know if it was the misfortune or the lack of foresight to schedule some classes that ended around ten p m in davis uh, and then I had work at Starbucks at four in the morning, sometimes the next day, and so um You know, a logical, wise person would say, you got to either change your schedule at work or you got to change your schedule at school. But I had a solution that was better than that. My solution was just drive faster. (laughs) Right? If you just drive faster, you'll shave off five or ten minutes here or there. Um, And that adds up over time, right? Um, It doesn't add up if you get pulled over, which is what happened about two weeks in uh, to my first semester of college. And I remember uh, after getting that first speeding ticket, I was really close to reckless endangerment. I was going that fast. Uh, and I remember driving home the rest of the way and and just feeling so frustrated with myself and angry, and I was grieved. But the more that I've thought about it, I actually wasn't grieved about potentially endangering other people's lives. That didn't actually grieve me. Uh, or even endangering my own life, uh, risking my own uh, safety. I wasn't even grieved that, like, When I was driving like a maniac, I wasn't really walking in line with the character of Christ. That didn't grieve me. You guys know what grieved me. The $300 ticket grieved me, right? I was grieved that I got caught. (laughs) I didn't like that. And so when I was caught in kind of this uh, situation where I was frustrated with myself because of my circumstances, because of my consequences, what I went to was kind of this religious observance of the speed limit. I was like, I'm going to drive 65 miles an hour, and I'm going to do it for all 40 minutes, which now is a 45-minute commute each way. Um, and I was, I was really good at that until I started kind of looking uh, to my left and to my right. Well, really, just to my left, because I was in the slow lane, right? Looking to my left and being like, hey, they're driving. They're not getting pulled over. Like, it's fine. Why, why wouldn't I go a little bit faster? I can go a little faster than this. And um, within two weeks, I was just completely bored with going the speed limit. I thought it was like... It's a joke, everybody else is going so much faster. And uh, I, I got pulled over again. <laughs> I ended up in the exact same circumstance that I started in. My, my religious observance of the speed limit didn't get me very far. Um, and I think, you know, speeding is it's kind of a silly example, but I think we do this in a number of different ways where we find ourselves kind of trapped in the same pattern that we've been in, trapped in the same cycle that we've been in with sin, right? Maybe it's not speeding for you or road rage for you. Maybe it's rage, actual anger. Maybe you find yourself yelling at your spouse or yelling at your kids or yelling at your roommate again and you wonder, how did I get back here? Why am I here again? Or maybe for you it's, it's lying. Maybe you, you get trapped in this lie at work where you're in a meeting and you say something and you know it's not true, but you wanted to make yourself look smarter, better, more important than you actually are and you ask yourself how did i why am i back in this spot again or maybe it's your eyes maybe you objectify men or women with your eyes you oversexualize whether it's on a screen or in real life and you ask yourself how did i get back to this spot that i was in before i thought that i was doing better i thought i was changing i thought i was growing and the question at least the question that comes to my mind is how do we grow? How do we get out of these patterns and these cycles of sin, and how do we change? Well, the passage that we're looking at tonight gives us a little bit of a road map. Uh, it's kind of a sad road map in this text, but it's not the road of religion. It's not the road of rebellion, but It's the road of repentance. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the text here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Lord Jesus, when we come to the scriptures, we pray that we would meet you. We pray that your words in scripture, God, um, would highlight who you are, your character, that when we look into the scriptures, we would see your face, Jesus, that we would know you more, And so we pray as we come to a text about religion and rebellion and repentance and confession, we pray that you would speak to us clearly tonight. Speak from your text. Speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to us as individuals and as a congregation. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, We have been going through a book called Nehemiah. If you haven't been here or if you're new, don't worry. I'll catch you up to speed on where we've been at with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. So the Bible split into the Old Testament and to the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of God's people, Israel, and their relationship with God leading up to a person named Jesus Christ. And then the New Testament then tells the story of Jesus and his followers and beyond, the church. Okay, So in the Old Testament, if you hold a Bible, you'll find it about a third of the way in, Nehemiah. It's in the history of Israel that's known as the post-exilic period. And basically, that's just a fancy way of saying this is a time period where Israel is coming out of exile. They're coming out of their captivity in Babylon and then in Persia. And Nehemiah is one of the men who leads a group of people out of captivity back into their home country of Judah, Uh, and specifically the capital city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah 1 through about 7, 6 or 7, tells the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the structures of the city. He actually rebuilds the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And he meets opposition from outside. He meets opposition from within his own congregation. And then he meets opposition from outside again. But he gets it done. Nehemiah's your man if you want construction done, right? He gets it done in 52 days flat, But then the book takes kind of a a strange turn, it would seem, because it doesn't talk about Nehemiah anymore, starting in chapter 7. He kind of just disappears until the end. Um, Instead, it zooms out to a picture of the religious and moral life of the congregation of Israel at the time, um, and specifically kind of zooms in on three different uh, days of service, different uh, church services you could think of, Last week, Pastor Dave was up here and he was talking about the first two. So the first one, Ezra stands up, he reads the law, and the people weep. But he says this is not a day for weeping, this is a day for celebration and joy because God's people are gathered together in God's place once again. So let's celebrate. Let's be joyous for this occasion. And then the second celebration, the second service, is something called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And essentially, for a week, God's people live in tents, kind of, and it's to—it's um, intense. Um, and a <laughs> dad joke there. Um, and it's essentially for them to remember God's faithfulness to them, God's provision for them in a period of time uh, that seemed desolate when they were wandering in the wilderness. Well now the time has come for weeping. The time has come for confession of sin, the time has come for mourning. and that's where we're at in Nehemiah 9. We're at the third service, okay? So open up Nehemiah chapter 9 verse one. This I call the road of religion. It starts here. Now on the 24th day of this month, the same month that those other festivals happen, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So time out for a second. That doesn't really ring true to our ears today. We don't really, that's not something that people do before they go to church. They don't fast and then put on sackcloth and ashes. This is essentially the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of dressing in all black. They're getting ready for a funeral. They're not coming to a, a joyous celebration here. They've put on clothing for mourning, for grief, for grief, This is a solemn assembly. They're coming in, they're not coming in chittering and chattering. They're coming in with a solemn, serious tone. And it says this the Israelites then separated themselves from all foreigners. So I need to take another time out because we read this again in our modern eyes, our modern context, and we think, dang, Israel, they're kind of they're kind of racist. They're kind of ethnocentric, right? And you're actually not wrong. If you flip through some other parts of the Bible, you'll see that Israel is very ethnocentric, but that's actually not what I think is happening here. What's happening here is when it says they separated themselves from all foreigners, it's, you could read it as they're separating themselves from the foreign gods of the cultures around them. They're separating themselves from the idolatries of the people that they live among. Uh, this would be kind of like, again, the equivalent would be so you get your black uh, you know, suit on for the funeral that you're going to, but before you go there, you're not watching a show on your phone on Netflix that's all about um, people hooking up, right? You're not flipping through and scrolling through your phone looking for the latest gadget that's going to fulfill your life, right? That's the kind of separation from cultural idolatry that they have. They're trying to keep some distance from the idols that tend to capture their hearts. So... Don't read it as ethnocentrism, read it as they're trying to uh, keep uh, some distance from the cultural idols that are there. And it says they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. I'm taking a lot of time outs in the text, but I have to take a time out here too. (laughs) In our current context, we kind of have along this political spectrum we're on the right. People often only want to confess individual sin, only want to confess personal sin, overemphasize personal responsibility, at the exclusion of historic ancestor sin, for the sins of our forefathers, the sins of our nation, the sins of our culture. But then on the flip side, am I doing it right? No, here right, left. On the flip side, on the left often what happens is at the exclusion of personal and individual sin, we'll highlight the, uh, the systemic, the historic, the ancestral sin, the cultural sin of our nation. And I want you to notice something so clear in Scripture, and it's not just here. This is a thread throughout Scripture. We talked about it in Nehemiah 1. They don't make that distinction. Look what it says. They confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So don't, don't play that game where it's an either or. It's, it's yes, yes. They confess their sins. They confess their individual sins. They confess their father's sins, their forefather's sins, the sins of their land, the sins of their people. And then they go to church, guys. They go to church. Look what it says in verse three. They, set, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So if you're doing the math, a day is about 12 hours, right? A quarter of the day is three hours. All right, Liz, thank you so much for reading uh, scripture. That was three minutes, folks. That was three minutes. They stood, someone said, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. And then they, they stood for three hours listening to God's word. They were ready to go to church, Right? <laughs> And if that's a not enough, look, look what it says next. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. This is a six-hour revival service that's going on here, right? But as I think about this service and I think about the context and the history of Israel, I think about my religious observance of the speed limit for a matter of a couple of weeks. See, nothing wrong here uh, There's nothing wrong here in any of this. In fact, we could probably preach a whole series through just this section, right? The the goodness of listening to God's law, the goodness of confessing, the goodness of uh, taking seriously our sin. But what happens is religion often will produce kind of quick results, fast results, because you're passionate and you're zealous, uh, but then it slowly starts to, to fade out. We'll just do a, a quick check. It's July 17th. How many how many people are still going strong on their New Year's resolutions here? <laughs> nice, good job, Forrest. I'm not. I don't even remember if I made one or not, to be honest. And this is the way that we are. We kind of, we kind of flame out in this religious observance and uh, observance. This religious zealous, uh, zealotry, right? Our passion wears off over time. Um, our passion our passion wears off over time. Uh, And what tends to happen then, if we're good at it, though, if we're good at religion, is that we tend to get kind of arrogant, self-righteous, proud, and eventually you can find yourself in the spot where you're going through all the motions and you don't even really need God, right? You're You're just doing the thing and you don't even really need God. Or maybe worse than that, the people in our city, the people around you start to see how proud and arrogant and self-righteous you become in your religion, that they don't want to have anything to do with Christians. They don't want to have anything to do with church, nothing to do with religion. I saw a woman, I was sitting at a coffee shop in town, it was just this week, and I noticed that the front of her shirt had had a cross upside down, and I was like, oh, this is Tucson, right? Cross upside down, And then on the back of her shirt, when she turned around, it had a church that was on fire, and underneath it, it said, the truth is elsewhere. And at first, I was judging her, just to be honest, I was judging her. But then I started to think, what religious people has she encountered? What self-righteous, arrogant, proud, religious people has she encountered that have hurt her so deeply? that she'd rather see a church on fire, right? See, if we're bad at religion, we flame out. If we're good at religion, we get proud and arrogant, and then we hurt the people around us. It's not the road of religion. It can't be the road of religion. That's not the way to real life change. Temporary, fast, but not lasting. What about the road of rebellion? I think. I think everybody here knows that it's probably not the road of rebellion, but I think we need to take a moment and diagnose if we're currently on the road of rebellion. Let's keep reading. Verse 5 says this. The Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabeneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, I practiced those, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is called above all blessing and praise And then what follows for the rest of the chapter is one long confessional prayer. But it's an interesting prayer because it's kind of a sermon prayer. See, it's addressed to God, but it's directed to the people. What's going to happen and what's going to unfold is that the priests are going to retell Israel's history through the lens of God's faithfulness and their failure. And it's going to repeat. So it starts, I'm not going to read all of it, Um, you You could do that on your own, Um, but it starts with creation, and it says God created everything, and God is good, and God is faithful, and God is true to his promises, and then God chose someone named Abraham. He chose him to uh, represent God. He made a covenant with Abraham. He was good to Abraham. God was good. God was faithful. God was true to his promises, and then it says the people of Israel found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God heard their cry. He heard their affliction. He was good. He was faithful. He was true to his promises. He rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery. They went through the Red Sea and they made it into the wilderness. They needed food and God was good. God was faithful. God was true to his promises. And so manna, bread, literally rained down from the sky and water literally came out of a rock because God was good. God was faithful. He was true to his promises. And then a sad turn happens. Look at what it says in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And the rest of this follows along this same line. See, they, they come out of the wilderness, and they come into the land, and God is good. God is faithful. God is true to his promises, but people, the people of Israel reject God. They want to pursue their own route. They cry out, and God is merciful. He saves them. And then, God is good and God is faithful and God is true to his promises and the people rebel and then they cry out and then God is good and God is faithful and God is true to his promises and the people rebel and this just cycles through over and over again with faster frequency as you read the prayer. And then finally, in verse 29, it says this, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he shall live by them skip down to verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the land, the hand of the peoples of the lands. See, ultimately their road of rebellion finishes in ruin. They're conquered. They're slaves again. The road of rebellion finishes in ruin. And as I was reading this, I, I I really wanted to look up this word presumptuously because it comes up a couple times. And it seems like this is the heart of the rebellion. See, presumption is assuming God's favor will continue and assuming that no consequences will come when you rebel against God. That's presumption. It's assuming that God's favor will continue, that no consequences will come to you even if you rebel against God. And I wonder, we're not Israel, but I wonder how often I do this to God. That I assume his favor. And listen, we're saved by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, your salvation is secure. I'm not questioning your salvation. But I wonder how often, how often we presume upon God's grace in our life. How often do we think I'm saved by grace. I don't need to try that hard. It doesn't really matter that much. Even though I sinned, it's okay. God's already got me covered. I'm already forgiven. In Romans 6, Paul says it this way. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. And I think If you're honest with yourself, when I'm honest with myself, I realize that frequently what I do is I presume upon God's grace. Here's just an example. On my very best days, my very, very, very best days, I wake up a little bit early before my kids, which is early. And for 15, 20 minutes, I'll I'll read God's word. Uh, Maybe I'll pray for another five or ten minutes. My very best days, mind you. (laughs) And then before dinner, I'll say a little prayer, you know, bless the food with my kids. We'll talk about something. But the majority of my day, if I'm not doing a spiritual activity, I'm kind of living like a functional atheist. I'm kind of living like a functional atheist. How easy do I forget who God is, forget God's presence, forget that he's with me, forget what he's done for me? And folks, that's what Israel did. They forgot. They forgot who, who they were. They forgot who God was. The road of religion is problematic, obviously, but the road of rebellion is just a faster path. It's a faster track to ruin. We need a different road. So what's the third road here? Uh, Let's look at verse 32. This is the the road of repentance. Verse 32 says this, Now, therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Now, I want you to know something. Um, this prayer, this sermon prayer, is 34 verses long. It's actually one of the longest confessions in the entire Bible. There is one prayer request in this entire thing. Right? When we come to God in prayer, often we start with all the requests. We list up, you know, uh, auntie so-and-so has a bad back. Let's pray for her. Amen, we should pray for her, right? One request. It's 27 verses confessing their sin, 27 verses saying that God is faithful, and then one request. And the one request tucked in there is this God, don't forget us. God, see us in the pain of the consequences we live in. God, see us in the brokenness of our situation. God, don't forget us. Don't let what's happening now seem small to you. Be near, don't be far. But what's interesting to me is that they've been here before. They've been here before, guys. Look at verse nine. It says that God saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and he heard their cry. Look at verse 27. It says, in that time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And doesn't he, they don't even make it a full verse before they go back into rebellion. In verse 28, it says, yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them. So it's more times that we don't even know about. Mm-hmm. And I look at this request and I think, this is the definition of crazy, folks. Yep. Right? Either God needs to stop saving these people or they need, to, they need to do something to break out of this cycle because they've been here before. They've been here before. So what is different this time? What's different this time around? Look what it says in verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law. They haven't even paid attention to your commandments and your warnings. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you and they did not turn from their wicked works. See, what's different this time is that there's a true sense of confession. There's a true sense of repentance that happens here. Repentance begins with confession. That's the first step in repentance. Confession is agreeing with God about your sin. Agreeing with God about your sin. See, sometimes we think confession is just venting, right? It's like, I gotta just get this off my chest, you know? That's not confession confession is saying, God, you are righteous in all that has happened. God, you are faithful and good. And I have been wicked. I agree with you that I have been wicked. I agree with you that you are good and that I have sinned. That's what confession is. And that's the, that's the, the first step here. They have to make that. They're, in order for there to be any heart change, it has to start with confession. But then the next step is that they don't stay there. They have to move. They have to turn around that's what repentance means, to turn away from their sin and walk in the other direction. They say, in verse 38, you can skip down, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. So Israel is, they're, they're earnestly, honestly trying to not sin anymore. I truly believe that. You look at what they say. They make a firm covenant in writing. A covenant is like an agreement with God. God had already made an agreement with them. They didn't need to make a new agreement, but they're writing their names down and they're saying, we're gonna do better this time. We're not gonna sin the way that we've sinned before. And guys, they don't even make it to the end of Nehemiah. I mean, there's there's only four more chapters in this book they don't even make it to chapter 13 before they go back to the way they used to be. In fact, the priests are begging for food by the end of chapter 13 because they've forgotten the priests. Their children are speaking other languages because they've just mixed up with the culture and they've mixed up with the cultural idolatry. They don't even remember their own language four chapters later. And so again, I look at this and the conclusion of this and if you're anything like me, you should just start to say, is there anything, is there any hope? When you look at this, is there any hope for Israel? Is it possible to come back to God? Is it possible to experience meaningful life change, renewal in our lives? And it should be so abundantly clear that as we read the history of Israel that they, that we, cannot do it on our own. We just can't. We can't uphold the covenant. We can't come back to God. What they need, folks, is they don't need to renew their covenant. They need a new covenant. Amen? Amen. Let me say that again. They don't need to renew their covenant. They need a new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. The law of God is going to be so deeply embedded in the people of God that it's going to be like it's inscribed on them, right? The prophet Ezekiel says it this way in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart in that day, I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And this is the critical part. I will put my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. Well, if we fast forward and we read the words of Jesus in the book of Luke, he says this in chapter 22, verse 20. In the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus says that the day is here. The day is now. The new covenant has come. Anyone who comes to him is going to be given a new heart, a soft heart. They're going to be given God's spirit so that they can actually obey God's laws. And so the original question that I had, is there, is there any hope for change? That's, that's where I started. <laughs> I was kind of bleak. <laughs> is there any hope for change? And for the believer, there's always hope for change, folks. There's always hope for change. Because Jesus is that new covenant. He didn't just write his name down on a piece of paper to say, look, I'm going to try hard. He wrote the covenant in his blood. He went to the cross. He died for us. He secured our place with him. And not only that, but he gave us his Holy Spirit so that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Is there hope for change? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's only in Christ. It's only in Christ. It's not the road of religion. It's not the road of rebellion. It's not even really the road of repentance. It's the road of Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So here's my invitation to you. Um, If you find yourself here and you're, you're just checking things out. You're checking out faith. You're checking out Christianity, church, this whole thing. Maybe, maybe you haven't been around in a while and you're just trying to dip your toe back in the water. My question for you is, do you find yourself stuck? Stuck in neutral, stuck in that cycle where you come back to the same place over and over You've tried the resolutions. You've tried reading your Bible. You've tried the reading plans, right? You've tried for meaningful change in your life, but you just feel stuck. If that's you, my question is, have you moved towards repentance and trust in Christ? And if not, what's stopping you? Is today the day that you enter into that new covenant by his blood? Is today the day? And if you're here and you're an old hat, you've been walking with Jesus for your whole life, do you find yourself in a place of complacency? Do you find yourself in a space where You often forget or ignore God? Um, Do you find yourself going back to the same sin patterns over and over and over again in your life? Um, And the answer is the same thing. Where is Jesus? And the invitation is the same. Invite Jesus to take his rightful place in your life. Invite the Holy Spirit to fill you up during this time, to renew you. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that the world, the, the mission, your mission to save the world did not just land with the Israelites. We're thankful, God, that it wasn't all up to them, but that you had a plan for a better Israel, that you had a plan for a better covenant. God, we praise you that that covenant is secure in your blood, Jesus, that we're made new, that we're given new hearts, that we're given your spirit, that we can actually experience real growth and real change in our lives. God, we invite you to do that work in our hearts, even now. Do that work in this place. God, we ask you to break chains and patterns of old sin that we've been stuck in for so long. Make us new. We invite you to have your way here with us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.